Hey, good afternoon. We are here at ACR 23 in San Diego. I'm joined by good friend and master hey, buddy. of rheumatology and infectious disease, Dr. Kevin Winthrop from Oregon Health Science Center in Portland. Uh, Kevin uh, is always active at these meetings, always teaching us. I know that you, you have a bunch of sessions and whatnot. I wanted to corner you on things that rheumatologists are concerned about. Sure. And, uh, and, and in the aftermath of COVID, um, are we still concerned about COVID? So there are reports yeah. that happened right after COVID and now about the vaccine itself causing autoimmune disease. What's your take on that? Uh, well, I think I told you about my experience with uh, gout, right? <laughs> I got my vaccine, uh, my toe kind of hurt, this is my first vaccine, and then the next day I had the biggest gout attack uh, ever, or my, my first one, and uh, it was quite impressive. So there, there's no question there's a innate and other uh, you know, parts of your immune system are, are uh, stimulated with these vaccines. So I, I think it makes sense that someone who has an underlying uh, inflammatory condition or maybe an incipient one could, could see a flare or something like that. I will say that most of the most of that type of information is in the form of case reports or case series. Right. Uh, there are some population-based data looks at those questions where, where generally you don't really see an increased risk of uh, you know new onset autoimmune disease um, or even flares of autoimmune disease. But again, I, I do believe it happens. I, I mean, I guess it happened to me with my gout. But I, I do think there's there's enough case reports that you do. You do see something like that. Um, I mean, certainly even with the vaccine uh, or with natural infection, right. uh, you see similar reports. Right. You see, you know, increased risk of seizures, diabetes. I mean, there's all these very small increased risks that you see with natural infection. I don't think it would be um, unusual to see something similar with, with a fake infection, a vaccine. Right, I mean, right. So right. to trigger some similar type of adverse events, uh, albeit in a much lower risk than the natural vaccine. Certainly. I mean, that's usually what we're trying to do, prevent these things. So I've seen uh, a lot of good reports about the biology, what what the the spike protein is doing, and, and for that matter, maybe even the vaccine. And it, it is does excite the anemia response. It does yeah, activate the absolutely. inflammasome. Yeah. And, and and that might, as you say, might be the trigger to start the fire and go to that old theory that I think we had as, as we were medical students that, you know, infection can make immune disease worse and, yeah. and just by the evil humors that it produces. So it's not surprising that vaccination would lead to more events. What do you think about the concept of, of actual infection leading to a, a surge in autoimmune disease. My take on that is that I think that during the COVID pandemic, nobody got seen, and after yeah. the COVID pandemic, everybody's back to being seen. So, is right. it is this enhanced uh, surveillance maybe that's picking up more cases that shows up in these reports? But I, don't, I, I personally don't think I'm seeing more autoimmune disease because of, of COVID. Yeah. So you know, the onset of new autoimmune disease, like I said, the the population-based looks I've seen at that with both natural infection and vaccine, you know, haven't really shown any increased risk. Um, but, uh, boy, I mean, it, it doesn't preclude the idea that it happens on an individual, you know, case-by-case -case basis, which sometimes, you know, you don't see something in a big population-based study, but you might have individual cases where that's the issue. I mean, certainly we know infection in general can trigger autoimmune diseases. I mean, this is well-established. Uh, so, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it does occur um, 
for some people. So. All right. So lastly, um, you know, we're now on the tail end, the back end, a different phase of a, what's going to be a long-lasting infection called COVID-19. Um, and we obviously said early on, get the vaccine. It's going to be important in your patients. Yeah. Surprisingly, patients with autoimmune disease did pretty well in spite of getting infected and whatnot. And the vaccination clearly seemed to work. Yeah. But now most people have the opinion this uh you know, the next phase of COVID is the is the new cold and nothing more. Yeah. Is it worth autoimmune patients getting the vaccine, the new the, 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 the next iteration? I just got it before I came to the meeting. Yeah, me too. I just got mine. And no, and no gout this yeah, time. No gout. I, I, went, I actually got the different vaccine. I got the Novavax vaccine. Oh, yeah. Really? Protein, ajuvenated vaccine that's different from the mRNA vaccine. The reason I did that is I think they all work similarly. Um, and they all have similar safety profiles. But I've been, the last mRNA vaccine, a guy here, I had like really impressive uh, lymphadenopathy in really? my armpit for, yeah, here I am with all these problems. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I decided I, I, was gonna, that. Sorry. Yeah, I was gonna get a different vaccine this time. It worked out fine. So, I mean, I think for people who've had difficulty with the mRNA vaccines before, that's, a, that's right. an option. Right. Um, but, but I think they're all good vaccines. And your question is really good. And, and it kind of goes back to something you said two minutes ago. Um, the, it's hard to study the, both the effectiveness of the vaccines as well as uh, safety or kind of this question of new autoimmune disease, et cetera, because people have multiple exposures at this point, both through natural infection and through vaccines. So some of the people have you know, two, three COVID experiences, and then they've had two or three vaccines. You know, they've had six, seven, eight exposures at this point. So. It makes it complicated to study some of these questions that you're asking. Right, right. That being said, it makes it raises a question you just asked, like, is it worth getting another vaccine? Um, and uh, to be honest, I think for a lot of people who are younger or not, you know, don't have risk factors, they've already been exposed four or five times. I, I don't know that you're gaining much with an additional vaccine at this point other than you know, the short-term, three-month, uh, you know, increase in your neutralizing titers, and then they go back down to where they were, you know, three or four months ago. So um, so there may not be a lot of benefit for for those type of people. Now, I think for your patients, uh, it depends who they are. I mean, certainly subsets of them have not either had... I, I mean, I have patients who haven't had COVID before. It's hard to believe. I, me neither. I have not. And yeah. I've been tested many yeah, times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it, it, it's, there are those people out there, so they are more naive that way, um, immunologically. And I think also there are patients that you know have had suboptimal exposure to the vaccine or suboptimal responses to the vaccine. I mean, we know that B cell depletion therapy. I mean, there's there's other people on TAC and MMF. I mean, there's groups of people that are out there that just probably are are under under protected. And so I mean, for those people. If we had a monoclonal preventive antibody, which hopefully we'll have soon, that's that would be a good option. And for those people also, I think booster is a good option too. Now the frequency of those boosters, I don't know. I mean, we've kind of slipped into this idea of annual boosters for the general population, which I, you know, myself and I, I have a lot of colleagues, I'm not sure, a lot of us don't think that's necessarily the right, right. answer. Um, for subsets of people who are immunosuppressed, who had prior problems mounting responses maybe maybe that is the answer at least temporarily right um but you know you can't vaccinate someone every three months or every six months i mean this is and if you look at the data the longer you wait between the vaccines the better they work 
So, you know, I, I know CDC says, you know, oh, if it was two months ago, you can get your vaccine. But, I mean, that's a little early. Right, like, and I, the data is weak yeah, at best. I would wait so, six to 12 months, I mean, if I was immunosuppressed, things like that. So, um, it, anyway, I, I think the, the long answer, it was way too long an answer, the look is to your question, yes, there are subgroups of people that should continue to be vaccinated, but we probably don't need to vaccinate at such short intervals. Right. So uh, it is, I mean, what, what do vaccines do? They reduce the risk. This is, a, this is you're playing the odds. And, yeah. and in high-risk patients, the, the, that seems like it's a, it's a worthwhile thing. I think that we know who our low-risk patients are and that we can be more conservative with them. But I, I think this is very helpful advice. So, Kevin, always wonderful. Yeah. Hey, let's, do, uh, let's do it again next year. Come, come to our uh, thing tomorrow. Len Calvary oh, yeah? and I and Cassie and Al Kim. And, this is a session on uh, what? Several other people. Yeah, it's a uh, CME, you know, Vindico CME on COVID. Uh, where we are today uh, with vaccine, monoclonal antibody development, and kind of what the future holds that way. So, oh, good. Yeah. Power, a powerhouse and, and antivirals. Uh, yeah, yeah. We got some good, there's good stuff in the pipeline. Yeah. So I think it'll be even more of a cold for people in the future. So, All right. Excellent. Yeah. That'll be Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. You got All right. it. Yeah. Thank All right. you. Be there. Cool. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan uh, from London, United Kingdom, and I'm here at ACR23 reporting for Room Now. And there have been very interesting presentations today. And today I want to focus in the area of cardiovascular risk, in particular in rheumatoid arthritis. We know that in rheumatoid arthritis, there is at least a one and a half times increase cardiovascular risk in terms of major cardiovascular events or cardiovascular mortality uh, compared to the normal population. And so how have this evolved here at the ACR23? There are two important abstracts from uh, today. Firstly, it's 0387 by Weber. And this looked at the, um, the use of our highly sensitive um, uh, um, CRP measurements and to see whether these um, uh, correlated with, uh, with the outcome of patients and also using the highly uh, sensitive um, troponin as well. So when they looked at the aspect of um, the troponin measurements and these uh, measure of uh, myocardial uh, uh, damage, uh, they, they looked at two groups. Firstly, the people who had uh, high CRP at the beginning of disease and then over time on the treatment they became low CRP and on the reverse, people who had low CRP at the beginning and then subsequently had high CRP. And they found that uh, in patients who had the high uh, CRP going to the low C, uh, CRP had an increased cardiovascular risk and this correlated with the presence of troponin uh, measurements in, in the blood. And so they concluded that the, the use of troponin uh, could be another measure that we could use in order to assess our patients with uh, rheumatoid arthritis in terms of finding out their cardiovascular risk on top of the traditional cardiovascular uh, factors that we know and that we use uh, for, for these patients. So uh, perhaps another marker that we could add into our cardiovascular risk assessment for our patients with rheumatoid arthritis. The second abstract uh, is 391 by Kapuzos uh, and colleagues, and this is about the, um, the use of uh, biologic therapies uh, and whether they made an impact in terms of the cardiovascular risk longer term. And these patients were followed um, up to 15 years. Uh, and this was part of the International Cardiovascular Consortium. Uh, and they had um, many patients, um, over 4,000 old patients recruited into this study. And the, um, the incidence was uh, to look at the incidence of uh, major cardiovascular events and any ischemic cardiovascular events over a period of time measured in terms of patient years. 
The main findings on this study was that in patients who were on biological therapies, uh, they had a better clinical outcome. There was a reduction in their major cardiovascular events and also uh, any ischemic cardiovascular events compared to the non-biologic groups, patients who are not treated with biologics. And again, this is a this tells us that uh, there is a there is a positive effect, a protective effect on the use of um, of such therapies to reduce the cardiovascular risk in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. In uh, in further analysis, it wasn't just the reduction in the disease activity score, the DAS28, uh, or the inflammation level that conferred the protection. There was also an added benefit that probably came from. Uh, they consider other factors such as stabilization of the coronary artery plaques, for example, additional uh, protective factors from the use of biologics beyond the traditional uh, reduction in just the inflammation levels. So I think from these two uh, studies today, firstly, um, assessing our patients using new tools such as the um, troponins uh, to measure um, cardiovascular risk on top of our standard cardiovascular risk assessment. And secondly, uh, with a more aggressive treatment of the condition um, and also seeing the um, added benefit of our biologic therapies in terms of reducing cardiovascular deaths uh, and risk for our patients. So, so two important studies from uh, ACR23 today. Thank you. Hi everyone, this is Aurélie Nash from Glasgow. I'm super happy to be here with you today, day two of ACR in San Diego. Um, there is a presentation that I wanted to bring to you um, because I think it's really interesting. It's been looking at whether the way we deliver TNF inhibitors is actually good. Is actually good enough or could it be better? Um, and so what it was, it was abstract 0838, and so what the authors did is they took a cohort of patients, treated with a tanercept, and they would not respond to a tanercept after three months. It was only 10 patients, uncontrolled studies, so obviously, you know, um, we, we have to keep that in mind, but so 10 patients, and instead of giving them subcutaneous tanercept, they decided to deliver this in a way that it would um, be delivered to the lymph to the lymph nodes and through lymphatic cam channels and so the way they did that is they developed this this technique I have to read this it's nanotopography microneedles so it's weird it's wearing like a like a bracelet basically uh, like a wristband and that delivers a tanercept straight into the joint draining lymphatic so obviously it's it's mainly if it's the wrist it was mainly focused on the on the arm and you know that that is obviously open for discussion whether you know it should be targeting other you know joints as well but what they found in this trial obviously there was no placebo either it wasn't controlled but is that these patients that were inadequately responding to a tanocept after three months and, and and therefore had a really high DAS could reduce their DAS by um, two points on average, which is actually really good, um, and 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 the patients global kind of dropped um, up to 77 percent again in in most of the patients at week 12. Um, and when it comes to safety, really, it was pretty good. I mean, obviously, some patients did have um, erythema uh, because it's microneedle, so you can imagine that it's probably um, a bit difficult for the skin. But it just made me reflect on you know. <laughs> Maybe the drugs work, but the way we deliver is not great. And, and so obviously, I think this is really something to follow. I would be really, really keen to see a placebo-controlled um, trial for this technique. And so stay tuned. Go on romnat.com for more content and follow me on Twitter at OLIRMO.
Thank you. All right, this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh. I'm at ACR 2023 Convergence. A lot of interesting abstracts presented here. I'm going to talk about one. Is abstract 25 entitled Relationship Between Genetic Variants in Cannabinoid Receptor 2 and Self-Report Effectiveness of Cannabis for Pain Management in Rheumatoid Arthritis? Of course, a hot topic for all practicing rheumatologists. A lot of patients want to know, is there an impact of cannabis on pain? And the data have been quite mixed. Some people say that it helps. It's hard to prove that in large studies, that it's effective for large groups of patients. But there are some people who do seem to respond. These data address maybe some of that heterogeneity. So this is from the Forward Registry, previously the National Data Bank. And they identified a group of people who said that they had reported cannabis use and then asked them if they felt that it helped or not. And they picked people for whom they also had genetic sampling and were able to look at several SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, in genes relevant to the cannabinoid receptor. And they did find, interestingly, that there seemed to be an association between certain SNPs that were a small percentage of the population and the lack of response to cannabis. So I thought this was very interesting. It's self-reported data and it's remote, but the genetic analyses are sound. And as I said, we see heterogeneity in how people think cannabis helps with their pain. Pain is incredibly important to patients with rheumatic diseases. That's why they come to see us. So every little bit of explanation we have for the pain, but more importantly, everything we could potentially offer as something to help with the pain is certainly welcome. And the more we learn about which patients might be right for which therapies, the better we do. This is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh at ACR 2023 Convergence in San Diego. Hi, it's Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR 2023 Convergence in San Diego. Lots of good abstracts and posters presented and on a lot of important topics. I want to talk about one abstract, 387, and this looks at the potential role for high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T and cardiovascular events in rheumatoid arthritis. So this is from uh, the uh, cohort, longitudinal cohort of RA patients, and it deals with an important issue, that is which of our patients might have a greater risk of having MACE events. This was brought to the forefront by the oral surveillance study most recently, the 1133 study, where it seemed that there may have been an imbalance with different treatments and the occurrence of MACE events particularly in people who had risk factors, people over the 65, people who had ever smoked, uh, people with established cardiac risk factors. So in this analysis, what they did is to look at highly sensitive troponin T as a marker potentially of cardiac injury. It certainly is something that our colleagues use to identify people who've had actual damage, such as a myocardial infarction. But if you look more carefully, you'll find that quite a number of people may have elevated levels. Do these have any prognostic significance? Well, this abstract looked at that and said that they may. So if you have people who have detectable cardiac troponin T, the highly sensitive one, so more people will have it. I uh, think in this cohort, they had about 30% of people who did have that. They indeed seem to be more likely, even adjusted for other cardiac risk factors, to suffer MACE events. So 
Is this something we're going to see measured in the future? Might it be measured as part of clinical trials to more specifically delineate cardiac risk? We'll have to see. But it was an interesting idea and I think a well-done abstract and important information. So this is Dr. Artie Cavanaugh coming to you, ACR 2023 Convergence. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan uh, from London, United Kingdom. I'm here at ACR 23 in San Diego, uh, reporting for Room Now. And uh, today at the conference, we've uh, heard about uh, new developments in the area of rheumatoid arthritis. And today I want to focus on the area of diet. There's a lot of uh, discussion that we've had about the impact of diet on uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, today I'm joined by um, uh, Marta Salaklimon. Uh, she's a researcher from University of California, San Diego, and she's presented an abstract number 2125 on the use of a diet called ITIS, and this is in comparison to the Mediterranean diet. And uh, some really interesting findings, and I'm very happy that, uh, Marta, you can come and join us. Yeah, thank you. So um, tell us a little bit about your study uh, from the uh, presentation today. Yeah, so uh, we're conducted a blinding randomized clinical trial, and this is an ongoing study, but the preliminary outcomes that we that we are finding is the, the, the poster in, that we presented. Uh, so what we are trying to do is to observe the effect of the ITIS diet for three months in uh, rheumatoid arthritis patients and the effect of the Mediterranean diet for uh, three months in rheumatoid arthritis patients. So at each, uh, at each visit, what we do is a physical examination of the patient. We also gave them a, a health test like the health assessment questionnaire. Uh, and also we collect blood, stool, and saliva samples for the further analysis. Um, so what we observe uh, right now is that patients following ITIS diet uh, have improved uh, a little better than, than patients following just the, the Mediterranean diet. So uh, ITIS patients, uh, so, sorry, uh, patients following the ITIS diet improve their pain, their fatigue, their CDA, um, uh, their visual scale analog from the physician and the visual scale analog from the from the patient. Uh, while the Mediterranean diet patients uh, improve their CDA and the visual scale analog uh, from from the from the physician. Uh, this is uh, of course preliminary data, so we cannot say that ITIS diet is much better than the Mediterranean diet, but this is uh, some tendencies that we can observe. Um, also, while, um, while seeing the adherence to the diet, we could observe that ITIS patients were more adherent to the diet. Uh, we are further analyzing this data, so I cannot tell you much about this, but uh, this is what we observed and we, we thought that was interesting to, 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 to further analyze. And then for the microbiome analysis, what we just did was uh, with the baseline microbiome of all uh, the patients, we try to predict the response of, of the diet. So for ITIS diet patients uh, at day plus 15, those who did not respond show a higher abundance of uh, Keribacteria and Rekibacteria. And those uh, who responded f uh, find a higher abundance of the rhea. Uh, while in the Mediterranean diet patients, we observed just that the non-responders had a, a higher abundance of enterococcus. Uh, and then we observed very different things uh, at three months, and we are not very sure if this is just because we don't have enough patients, like we have some dropouts, so we don't have as much patients at three months at, as we did at two, at, uh, sorry, day plus 15. Um, but we observed some differences, which uh, for 
IT's diet will be uh, that uh, the non-responders show higher abundance in uh, Choreobacterium and uh, the responders show higher abundance in Granulicatella. And then for the Mediterranean diet patients, we didn't observe any uh, higher abundance in non-responders, but we observed some almost statistically uh, significant high abundance in responders for uh, Paraprevotella and Lagnos, uh, Lagnobacterium. So a very comprehensive study, uh, although I understand you used to say preliminary, but I suppose very promising uh, because for many t years we've only kind of knew about Mediterranean diet mainly. Mm -hmm. So for our benefit, can you just tell us what is in the ITIS diet? What, what components yeah. make up the ITIS diet? Sure. So uh, ITIS diet, the main difference between ITIS diet and Mediterranean diet is that in ITIS diet we try to eliminate the pro-inflammatory foods that can be present in the Mediterranean diet. For instance, dairies. Um, uh, well, with dairies, I, I have to say that there are some contradictory data uh, we just decided to remove it because it can be pro-inflammatory, but there's no for sure evidence that that supports that this is uh, pro-inflammatory. Uh, we are removing the alcohol, uh, sugary drinks, um, uh, refined grains, uh, solanosia like tomato and eggplants, um, and red meat. And also for for vegetables, we 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 try them to to eat like more kale, more broccoli, so more greens, more anti-inflammatory uh, vegetables. In terms of um, of fruits, we ask them to eat more enzymatic fruits like uh, mango or pineapple. Uh, also anti antioxidant fruits like berries, strawberries, raspberries, uh, and then in terms, for instance, of fish, we ask them to eat more omega-3 rich fish. Uh, which will be the fatty fatty fish, but the smaller ones because of the high metals. And for um, sorry for for meat, we are asking them to to eat chicken or turkey, but like two to three times per week, not more, uh, because the the main thing we want to do is try to to change a little bit the um, the protein from meat from animal to vegetable protein. Mm -hmm. Because that's also more anti-inflammatory, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, also, in terms of uh, coffee and green tea, we are trying to reduce the coffee intake and improve the green tea intake because it's much more anti-inflammatory and antioxidant. And basically, those are the so more green tea uh, in mm. the ITIS diet, yeah, uh, mm. which is uh, something we should uh, encourage more. Yeah, <laughs> uh, certainly from this evidence that we have. So there was improvement in some of the report patient outcomes, yes, uh, uh -huh. some of the uh, clinical outcomes, yeah. but also there was a change in the biodiversity or the microbiome yeah. in the two diets. Mm -hmm. So do we think that that perhaps could explain some of the clinical outcomes, although it's preliminary, what is your projection? Yeah. So our projection is uh, when we uh, finally get all the patients that we are trying to reach, uh, we are going to evaluate the microbiome. Uh, at its time point to see if this can be changed because of the diet, uh, but I think uh, the baseline trying to respond, uh, t sorry, trying to predict the response is also important. Uh, so yeah, we are getting further analysis in this, but also we are trying to, to evaluate the bile acids and different acids that come, come from, the, from bacteria. Uh, so it's more what we are doing than what I could show in the poster. Uh, but 
yeah, we are trying to, to have um, a correlation between the, the biological samples and the re their response. And I think that would be quite important in mm. terms of uh, showing a biological effect yeah. uh, of your diet on the, on the microbiome and then linking it back to the, the clinical outcomes yeah. as, as a kind of completion of the whole loop, yeah. if you like. <laughs> um, so going forward... You know what does you know what does the future hold for your project? What 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 would be the next kind of steps? Well, you be looking into. I know you're going to complete the, the uh -huh. assessments and the microbiome. Yeah. Uh, and you recruit more patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we will also be analyzing the bile acids. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and we will also be analyzing uh, saliva saliva samples and. That will be mainly the thing. Also, oh, sorry, we will also be trying to observe the oxylipin change. Um, but those are our thoughts right now. Okay. Uh, I think we will have to do much more things. Yeah. But those is, are the, the near future. Yeah, things. so it's so a lot of promising new data mm -hmm. that we probably would see in future meetings and yeah. hear mm -hmm. more about your work. Um, so uh, are there any sort of take-home messages that you have from your study for our audience? Uh, yeah, or so um, wait. I cannot say that the ITIS diet is better than nature and diet for our preliminary data, but uh, we can observe that if you improve the anti-inflammatory and antioxidant foods and remove the pro-inflammatory foods, uh, this can be helping the patient. We can observe that with only 20-something uh, patients, we, we could observe that. So I could say that you can try to, 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 to follow this uh, as, as, as a patient or as a as a physician, you can uh, advise us to your to your uh, patient, and that could be uh, a really good uh, improvement for them. The, 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 we used to say an apple a day yeah. keeps the doctor <laughs> away. Maybe not at this point in time, but maybe in the future, a cup of green tea a day yeah. <laughs> might keep the doctor away. Early yeah. days, but we look forward to your research. So thank you very much for uh, sharing with us your information. Thank you And so we much. look forward to your, your future research studies. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting for Room Now virtually from ACR 2023. I'm here today to talk to you about Abstract 840, was presented at uh, Sunday's ORA Oral Abstract session. This was by Zhao Feng Zheng et al. Um, it was a head-to-head -head comparison of TLL018 and tofacitinib in patients with active rheumatoid arthritis. It was a phase two uh, randomized control trial. So TLL018 um, is a new agent. It is a combination JAK1 and TIC2 inhibitor. We'd already seen some of this data presented earlier this year at Jular, um, where it caused uh, quite a commotion. Um, so I said this was a phase two randomized controlled trial comparing this new drug to tofacitinib in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Study was based in China. It enrolled 101 uh, patients. It was for an initial uh, 12 week duration with a 12 week uh, follow up period. It looked at three different doses of this novel agent either uh, 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams, or 30 milligrams BD. Um, mostly, I'm, I'm going to focus on the higher dose because that had the most uh, positive um, outcomes. And really, to some extent, these were earth-shattering. Um, so we've had so many drugs for rheumatoid arthritis. And the very, very strange thing is that they all seem to come out at around the same numbers in the randomized control trials. There's not very much to differentiate all these agents, despite the fact that they work in very, very different ways. And even when we've done head-to-head -head trials, there may be very, very small differences, but, but nothing huge. 
This study, however, did show something huge. So ACR 50 response rates at 12 weeks, 72% for TLL 018 versus 42% for tofacitinib. So an enormous difference. The other new thing we see in the data now is that there was an escape arm in this study. So the patients who were on tofacitinib after 12 weeks, they could switch over to this uh, TLL 018. They did that at the 20 milligram dose. And of those patients, 83% of them reached ATR 50 after a further 12 weeks. So this is really, really surprising data to me. This agent looks like a miracle drug. It looks better than anything we've ever seen before. We're no real extra safety signal seen either. So, so nothing on that count. This is either going to go one or one of two ways, isn't it? This gonna, if this holds up in the phase three trials, this is gonna revolutionize our treatment in rheumatoid arthritis. This is gonna be the go-to drug. It's probably gonna be the first agent used. It's definitely gonna be the first advanced therapy used. On the other hand, we've seen promising phase two results before, and it may be that uh, all this falls down and this drug uh, comes out looking more similar to our existing agents. We don't know what's going to happen. We'll need to wait for the phase three data. I am going to put my nickel down and say, I don't think it's going to work out. I think it's going to come down looking the same as everything we've had previously at the end of the day. And that this data is just some sort of blip or fluke. But time will tell. Um, I'm Richard Conway. Follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. And remember to tune into Room Now for all the updates from ACR 2020. Hi, everybody. It's uh, Mike Putman from the Medical College of Wisconsin reporting to you from ACR Convergence 23 for Room Now. I'm excited to be here, and I'm talking about one of the most important sessions that I saw today, which was the presentation of the recommendations or the ACR guidelines for interstitial lung disease that were presented at one of the morning sessions. Now, I found this very interesting, and Room Now has been covering a lot of this already. Myself and Dr. Conway have already put out a couple pieces, but the thing that I wanted to focus on today were how they define people at high risk of developing interstitial lung disease. Now that's very important because the guidelines recommend screening with pulmonary function testing and high-res CT scans for such patients. Now when we first saw it I said that sounds like they're going to be recommending a whole lot of people and today we know a little bit more about what they meant. Now first, I think they were pretty reasonable. They did say that we're not saying you have to screen these people, but we wanted to tell you that these folks are at an elevated risk. Now, things got a little bit wonky from there. For inflammatory myopathies, such as myositis, I actually think they're their population they identify as quite good as people with the antisynthetase syndrome, people with MDA5 positivity. I am doing screening for interstitial lung disease for pretty much all of those patients already and would, would endorse that practice. Now things get a little bit wonkier as you go down the list. So for patients with systemic sclerosis, they identify people with SCL70, diffuse subtype, and early in disease, the first five to seven years. Now. I am screening a lot of those people already, so I think some of that's reasonable. But these guidelines, to me, essentially boil down to a recommendation to screen almost everyone who's being newly diagnosed with systemic sclerosis. Now, I've already talked about this a little bit, but when you get to rheumatoid arthritis, I think this, things get a little bit more complicated. They say people with a high RF, a high CCP antibody, smoking, older age, high disease activity, male sex, and higher BMI. That is not everyone, but it's pretty darn close. 
And I'm not routinely screening all patients with rheumatoid arthritis at this point. So I think that on balance, the, the recommendations did a reasonably good job for some diseases. For myositis, I absolutely think people who have antisynthetase syndrome or MDA5 deserve a CT scan and probably pulmonary function testing at baseline. For rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's syndrome, which was also recommended for everyone who had seropositivity, I think that this is a little bit aggressive, and I think you're going to find a lot of people which will ultimately wind up in overdiagnosis and potentially overtreatment. So it's going to be an interesting time sussing out how these apply to current clinical practice, but overall a very big endeavor and one that I'm excited to have something to talk about. So thanks again for tuning into Room Now. Uh, we'll be reporting for the rest of the meeting as well. Have a great day, everyone. Hi, it's Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you for Room Now from ACR Convergence 2023. Big meeting, lots of posters, lots of interesting information. There's one abstract, as happens sometimes, that really gets your interest, and uh, there, yet there's some things that you still want to see more fleshed out about. This is 294, and the abstract is about the impact of tofacitinib treatment on skeletal muscle in rheumatoid arthritis. So one of the things that we've noticed with our jackanibs is that when we treat patients and we monitor laboratory values, we see an increase in CPK. And that doesn't necessarily seem to be pathologic and we don't see weakness, we don't see frank myositis. So what do we do with that? Well, this is an interesting study, small number, it was the, called the RAMRA study, open label, single center, um, 15 patients who had at least one other risk factor for muscle weakness, sarcopenia, which is a big problem. Uh, inanition, wasting, bad things which lead to frailty in patients with RA. What they did was measure muscles and they did that by looking at MRI before and after treatment. And what they found out is that it did seem that the JAK inhibitor therapy, in this case it was with tofacitinib, may have had an anabolic effect on muscle, which might explain the high CPK, insofar as that some muscles seem to be larger as a course of treatment. And there's a molecular rationale that could explain that. So I think with the specific therapies that we have, they, they do target things that we understand, but how the body interacts in these complex cascades, we don't know. So I think that these data are intriguing, and I'd certainly love to see a follow-up with further analysis into it. So for Room Now, this is Dr. Artie Cavan coming to you from ACR Convergence 2033 in San Diego. Hi everybody, it's Mike Putman reporting from ACR Convergence 2023 for Room Now. Um, I am excited to be discussing Abstract 1071 today with Maddie O'Sullivan. She's an internal medicine resident, chief resident at the University of Utah, who's applying to rheumatology. Now, I saw her abstract earlier today, which is about the mortality of patients with rheumatoid arthritis who receive checkpoint inhibitors. It's something that I think about a lot with my patients who develop um, diseases that require them, which seems to be all of them these days. And her abstract piqued my interest. So, Maddie, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, the question you were trying to answer? Yeah, so there's um, a theoretical risk that patients with underlying mm -hmm. autoimmune disease, and in particular rheumatoid arthritis, may experience adverse events related to their underlying autoimmunity, or they may um, experience decreased efficacy of the immune checkpoint inhibitors when needed mm -hmm. for treating their cancer. 
Um, so our objective was to look at patients with underlying rheumatoid arthritis before receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors, comparing their mortality rates and specific causes of death compared to those patients receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors without underlying rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, so I, I love that. I feel like oftentimes we look for outcomes that don't matter a whole lot and they're sort of nebulous, but yeah. there's nothing nebulous about death. All of our patients are yeah. like, you know, take that outcome measure seriously. So um, you have a good outcome measure and this is an important question. So tell me what did you find? So we used data from uh, the VA um, and we looked at a sample of about 300 patients with underlying rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and those patients were matched based on their age, sex, and their year of VA okay. enrollment compared to patients um, in the VA without a diagnosis of RA. They were similar at baseline in terms of um, their demographic characteristics, their specific subset of cancer diagnoses, and the type of uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor that was used to treat their cancer. Um, and then we uh, did an analysis to examine kind of differences in mortality and causes of death. Very cool. So you got a big group of people. They're VA patients. Um, that's a nice area to do research. We can actually get kind of granular data for epidemiology there. And you asked the relevant question, and I think you had a big enough sample size to sort of actually answer it. You know, a lot of times studies like this wind up being really small, like what happened to 17 people? We had 300 people with RA, and then a whole lot more who didn't. Uh, excellent. All right, so what were the results? Give me the big conclusion here. <laughs> so we found that there was no significant difference in yes. mortality rates yeah. uh, among these patients, and that they, they had similar causes of death. So the majority of patients okay. did die from uh, their, their malignancy, mm -hmm. um, and a, a vast minority of patients died um, of infectious complications, and those rates were similar between the two groups. Very cool. So this is highly relevant to patients with rheumatoid arthritis because, you know, if you're a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, you go on a drug that's going to ramp up your immune system, and you say, well, I'm also on drugs to ramp down my immune system. Exactly. How is this going to work? And so it seems like patients in that demographic do similarly, which is pretty encouraging. Right. So if you were to counsel a patient with rheumatoid arthritis about this study, what would you tell them? Like, how, what would be your take-home message for them? I think that there's, you know, there's good data that shows that patients with RA tend to experience flares during the duration of their immune checkpoint yep. inhibitor therapy. So we would talk about that, but I think that I would be able to reassure them based off this data that, that um, we expect that these drugs will be um, effective and that they, they won't have you know, an increase in other non-autoimmune related adverse events that, that may increase yeah. their mortality. I love it. Simple, to the point, highly relevant, and I think a message that our patients would be glad to hear. Uh, so thanks so much for letting me interview you. Uh, be sure to follow Room Now for all the great coverage from ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you. Experience adverse events related to their underlying autoimmunity, or they may um, experience decreased efficacy of the immune checkpoint inhibitors when needed mm -hmm. for treating their cancer. Um, so our objective was to look at patients with underlying rheumatoid arthritis before receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors, comparing their mortality rates and specific causes of death compared to those patients receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors without underlying rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, so I, I love that. I feel like oftentimes we look for outcomes that don't matter a whole lot and they're sort of nebulous, but yeah. there's nothing nebulous about death. All of our patients are yeah. like, you know, take that outcome measure seriously. So um, you have a good outcome measure and this is an important question. So tell me what what did you find? So we used data from uh, the VA um, and we looked at a sample of about 300 patients with underlying rheumatoid arthritis. 
Um, and those patients were matched based on their age, sex, and their year of VA okay. enrollment compared to patients um, in the VA without a diagnosis of RA. They were similar at baseline in terms of um, their demographic characteristics, their specific subset of cancer diagnoses, and the type of uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor that was used to treat their cancer. Um, and then we uh, did an analysis to examine kind of differences in mortality and causes of death. Very cool. So you got a big group of people. They're VA patients. Um, it's a nice area to do research. We can actually get kind of granular data for epidemiology there. And you asked a relevant question, and I think you had a big enough sample size to sort of actually answer it. You know, a lot of times studies like this wind up being really small, like what happened to 17 people? We had 300 people with RA, and then a whole lot more who didn't. Uh, excellent. All right. So what were the results? Give me the big conclusion here. <laughs> so we found that there was no significant difference in yes. mortality rates yeah. uh, among these patients and that they, they had similar causes of death. So the majority of patients okay. did die from uh, their, their malignancy mm -hmm. um, and a, a vast minority of patients died um, of infectious complications and those rates were similar between the two very cool. So this is highly relevant to patients with rheumatoid arthritis because, you know, if you're a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, you go on a drug that's going to ramp up your immune system, and you say, well, I'm also on drugs to ramp down my immune system. How is this going to work? And so it seems like patients in that demographic do similarly, which is pretty encouraging. Right. So if you were to counsel a patient with rheumatoid arthritis about this study, what would you tell them? Like, how, what would be your take-home message for them? I think that there's, you know, there's good data that shows that patients with RA tend to experience flares during the duration of their immune checkpoint yep. inhibitor therapy. So we would talk about that, but I think that I would be able to reassure them based off this data that, that um, we expect that these drugs will be um, effective and that they, they won't have you know, an increase in other non-autoimmune related adverse events that, that may increase yeah. their mortality. I love it. Simple, to the point, highly relevant, and I think a message that our patients will be glad to hear. Uh, so thanks so much for letting me interview you. Uh, be sure to follow Room Now for all the great coverage from ACR Convergence 2023. Thanks, you. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting virtually for Room Now from ACR 2023. I'm here to talk to you today about Abstract 1582. This was presented at um, Monday's plenary session uh, number two. It was by Bryant England and colleagues. It was non-TNF inhibitor biologic or TSD MARDs versus TNF inhibitors in rheumatoid arthritis, ILD. So the reason uh, this study has come about is that there has been this previous suggestion that TNF inhibitors are associated with increased mortality um, in patients with RA, ILD. There are a number of studies hinting at this. The main one was a BSR registry study, which compared TNF inhibitors to rituximab, um, showing worse outcomes with TNF inhibitors. Really, to many of us, this never really made mechanistic sense. TNF inhibitors are a fantastic drug for almost every other aspect of rheumatoid disease, among other conditions. They have not been associated with uh, lung disease in a de novo fashion uh, commonly at all. And why would they worsen this aspect of rheumatoid disease when potentially helping all other ones? So this is my favorite abstract uh, probably from this meeting. It is such a smart study, um, very important clinical findings and presented in a really, really nice way uh, today as well. So this is a target trial emulation. Um, it was um, using a new user propensity score matched uh, design. It was based in the VA. So there's some caveats with that. So as you'd expect, this was largely male, 92%. 
largely older patients with a mean age of 68 years. And they compared uh, non-TNF biologic or TSD merits to TNF inhibitors in patients who had ORA ILD. They enrolled 474 patients in this study. The non-TNF inhibitor patients, 53% of them were rituximab and 28% were on abatacept. And this is important because these are the two agents we favor in RILD. We think these are our best two agents. And 80% of the patients being compared to TNF inhibitors were on one of these two drugs. Findings. So there's an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.22 for respiratory-related hospitalization for favoring the TNF inhibitors. There's no difference in all-cause or respiratory mortality. So this has a ratio of 1.22. It's not st statistically significantly different. I mean, people could argue that the 22% uh, potential increase, that is clinically important. It's within the error range of the study. But even if that is true, it comes down to the TNF inhibitor side. So really, I, I think this study largely exonerates TNF inhibitors from their, their previously suggested role in worsening outcomes in oral ILD. I'm not sure it quite says that they should be the first line agent. I don't think it'll change my practice to start initiating TNF inhibitors preferentially in patients with ILD. But I think what it will say is if somebody's on a TNF inhibitor and they happen to have ILD uh, coincidentally, I'm not going to be switching them off the TNF inhibitor to give them a different agent because this data really says that there is no need to do that. Remember to follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway and check out Room Now for all the coverage from ACR 2023. Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, reporting for Room Now from ACR Convergence 2023. Looking at all sorts of rheumatoid arthritis stuff, but today we're looking at abstract 0433, and I have here the author, Dr. Jiha Lee, rheumatologist at U Michigan. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And thank you for letting me talk about my favourite subject, which is about older adults in RA. And so I got interested in this first, because I was shocked to know that, you know, one in six older adults are really just 65, and that number's growing. And we're taking care of a progressively older panel patients who have more multimorbidity, polypharmacy. However, yet clinical trials that inform our guidelines usually enlist adults around the age of 53 and 55. So there's a real gap in our knowledge of how we practice for these older adults, but that's the reality of our lives, right? And I also discovered the prevalence of RA is not only increasing, but there's a small group of older adults who are newly diagnosed with RA over the age of 65. So I used Medicare data to kind of get an understanding of who these older adults and are they getting the right treatment that they need. And I got to say, I was a little disheartened. Are they getting the right treatment? No, they're not. No. Because only about a third of RA patients after a real diagnosis of late onset RA and being followed by rheumatologist for the most part are only getting DMARs about 30% of the patients. And what's astounding is among those who are not getting any DMARs, about 10% are getting steroids only for more than six months at a high dose of seven and a half or more, which a lot of our colleagues have shown repeatedly over the years that it's really harmful. So I just want to stop there. I would presume that all of our rheumatoid arthritis patients would get DMARs. Regardless of the age, mm -hmm. you wouldn't think there'd be any reason not to have them on DMARs, but only one third mm -hmm. in this large national cohort right. are on DMARs. Yes. Where is this all going wrong? How does this happen? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. So we call the people diagnosed before young onset RA, right? So those 70, 80% of them are on DMARs. 
And because they're diagnosed at a young age and their multimorbidities are developing alongside, I think physicians, we have less resistance in terms of how to make those modifications. But when you're an older adult who has, again, more multimorbidity, polypharmacy, often frail, and again, we're swimming in the area of no data. Like, how do we know what the drug disease or drug-drug interactions are going to be? So there's a lot of hedging to go on. I mean, just take methotrexate for an example, right? Older adults have more chronic kidney disease. That's our reference or go-to drug. And if we don't start there, and that's the drug that allows us to keep on anti-TNS, where do we go? What do we do? Sure. So these people were just swimming along on steroids, low-dose steroids, sometimes high-dose steroids? Unfortunately so. And this, we just think that this is acceptable standard of care? I don't think we think it's acceptable, but I think it's that there's not enough emphasis placed on and yeah. we don't have enough guidance on mm. how best to care for older adults, nor do we really know to have a directed conversation with our older adults to elicit their goals, preferences, and see how do we make that trade-off. So is this primary care who's complicit in this, who are the ones or is it rheumatologists? Where who's who's doing this? That's a really good question, and it's actually both because, as we know, there's a workforce shortage, mm. so we can't take care of everybody. So yes. we do rely on primary care physicians to first diagnose, and they're the first to encounter. And the good news is they're very good at initiating conventional synthetic DMARs, actually to some degree comparable to us. And our role really comes in when we have to introduce the complex regimens and the biologics, and that's where we're falling short. So I think it's part and due to access issues, workforce issues, but also some degree of ageism and lack of information that we collectively as rheumatology need to start addressing. So you've published other data looking at the way that rheumatologists prescribe, and I guess implicit in that is your ageism in the way that they prescribe for older adults. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I mean ageism is an ism and ageism is often at the intersection of racial ethnic disparities as well. You bring in that low socioeconomic status, so it really marginalizes older adults and they're underrepresented in studies. So we're really trying to understand how ageism impacts um, care. So actually a plug-in for my colleague, Una McCreese, is doing a survey on ageism. So if anybody's interested, we would really evaluate and value your input in that. But I think it's an area that we, in the context of DEI, ethics, research, education, that need to start looking at it to see how we behave. Because not only is it our patients getting old, our rheumatology workforce is getting old. 20% over the age of 60. So really, what, how are we going to fix this situation? How are we going to fix this situation where essentially two-thirds of, of patients who are over the age of 66 mm -hmm. are getting really what I would consider an unacceptable um, practice. Yeah. How are we going to change that? Well, we need more data. We need the evidence. And that means we really need to make a conscious effort and a design plan to include older adults into clinical trials or actually any kind of research. Mm. And in fact, in 2017, NIH introduced the lifespan um, inclusion across lifespan policy, which means for anybody engaged in human subjects research, including surveys, interviews, human tissue, that older adults should not be excluded for cost convenience reasons, and it has to be representative of the population that we're actually providing care for. Mm. So I think that's one start place, and shameless plug here, I'm hoping RRF will also adopt that policy and be aligned with NIH, and that again, as a community, we can think about how to better bring in older adult perspectives, you know, experiences, all of that into the care, and have data directed at the population that we're going to be cared for. Well, it sounds like we, we really badly need to we talk at this meeting about a lot of incremental benefits and changes for rheumatoid arthritis patients, but it sounds like we're just leaving a whole heap of them by the wayside. Yes, and those are the people who are only just going to be growing. And the thing is, I do want to emphasize, this is a testament to the medical advances that we've made. Like, now that we've actually had advances in RE treatment, we get to now consider an older population that we can really benefit and ensure that they have a really good life. 
So for plenty more about everything rheumatoid arthritis this meeting, go on down to rheumnow.com. Hello everyone, I'm Richard Conway reporting for Room Now from ACR 2023. I'm reporting virtually from Dublin, Ireland. I'm going to talk to you today about Abstract 1629. Uh, this was presented um, at Monday's uh, Rheumatoid Arthritis Oral Abstract session. This was by Caleb Michaud and colleagues. This was titled Persons with Rheumatoid Arthritis and Long COVID. Um, and then there's some other stuff which I'm going to skip for now in the title because it really gets at the study um, outcomes. So long COVID, we know all about this. It's um, very much answered the, the mainstream um, knowledge and is not just confined uh, to health professional discussions. It's common, I've seen about 30% of COVID cases and about 10% of those, it seems to be more persistent. So it doesn't resolve um, soon after COVID. Those of us who, who've worked in this area for some time have noticed a lot of similarities between long COVID and other conditions that we've seen. So fibromyalgia being one that we see in rheumatology and also previous post-viral type syndromes such as chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. So the authors here looked at 667 patients who had rheumatoid arthritis and COVID. Of those 15% were diagnosed with long COVID. And what the authors here were looking at was the characteristics of the patients before they got COVID and what happened uh, during COVID. So before COVID, they found that patients who subsequently went on to develop long COVID had a much higher rate of fibromyalgia as a pre-existing diagnosis, threefold increased risk, seen a 41% compared to 13%. Those who got long COVID tended to be older, they were less likely to be white. They had lower socioeconomic status. They had more depression, more comorbidities, and at worst rheumatoid arthritis-related patient-reported outcomes all before COVID happened. Their long COVID itself um, was tended to be more severe. They needed more intravenous antibiotics and had more hospitalizations for COVID. But both of those things did not happen to the majority of patients who developed long COVID. So the IV antibiotics was 23% versus 9%, and the hospitalizations was 18% versus 5%. So the authors came out with a, with a, a real hot take on um, their discussion of what these results meant. And they suggested that... Um, long COVID symptoms may reflect pre-existing illness that was there before um, COVID. That is probably going a bit too far uh, for me. I, I don't think uh, the data definitively lets us say that. I think it's probably not true either. Um, I think what we can say um, was the author's other conclusion that those with long COVID did have many symptoms that would be consistent with long COVID before they ever got COVID. So naturally then when COVID developed, those symptoms could be attributed um, to uh, long COVID as opposed to fibromyalgia or something else, uh, which would, would have been attributed to before uh, COVID. I think really what, what we are seeing with long COVID, or at least my conceptualization of it, is that lots of things play into this. Some of those are the things that happen during the COVID itself. Some of them may reflect pre-existing uh, characteristics um, of uh, the patients or of their diseases. I think another way of looking at this is if you have fibromyalgia to start off with and everything that comes with that, the symptoms, the impact of that on your life, and then you get COVID on top of it, I think it's, it's natural to expect 
that you probably are more likely uh, to uh, develop uh, symptoms of uh, long COVID. Um, so remember to check out um, Room Now for all the updates uh, from ACR 2023 and follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2023. I would like to talk about HPV vaccination and cervical cancer screening in rheumatic disease. Last year, the ACR came out with updated guidelines on vaccination. The ACIP recommends HPV vaccination for individuals aged 11 to 26 year, years old. For those aged 26 to 45 years, particularly those um, SLE and RA patients or those with rheumatic disease who have not been previously vaccinated, the ACIP recommends HPV vaccination based on shared decision-making. Which brings me to discuss abstract number 1356 by the group of Dr. Amaya Small on the reproductive history and HPV vaccination awareness among women with SLE and RA. Their study is an interim analysis of their rheumatology women's reproductive health and wellness cohort in whom participants responded to questions on rheumatology history, reproductive history, and HPV vaccination awareness. The group then compared reproductive history and HPV vaccination status and awareness among their patients with SLE and RA included in the cohort. Now, both groups were similarly likely to be sexually active with similar reporting times since their most recent pap smears, as well as abnormal pap smear results. But SLE patients were reported to have persistently abnormal pap smear results on follow-up than RA patients. And in addition, cervical cancer screening discussions by rheumatologists were done more on SLE than RA patients. Both groups were also similar in terms of HPV vaccination awareness and HPV vaccination status. However, 50% of the cohort members who were, who were or are eligible for vaccination, these are respondents less than 45 years old, did not receive the HPV vaccine. The major reason reported was simply because they were not offered the vaccine. Other reasons included they did not know it was important and they were, they were concerned of the vaccine side effects. Studies such as these make us realize the daunting role we rheumatologists have to play in the management of our patients. It opens our eyes to the reality that despite the evidence and recommendations, HPV vaccination rates are still low. And I think that is a global um, global finding. So that being said, this interim analysis highlights the importance of increasing HPV disease awareness and discussing vaccination and cervical cancer screening with our SLE and RA patients. Follow me on X at Rumorampa and tune into Room Now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you. I'm Anthony Chan from London, United Kingdom, reporting here for Room Now that's in San Diego ACR 23. 
Today is another uh, day where we've uh, seen a lot more presentations here at the meeting. And one of the fields of rheumatology that has uh, certainly been expanding is the use of ultrasound, in particular musculoskeletal ultrasound. But one of the issues that we want to discuss is about the teaching and the delivery of ultrasound uh, to the users. How do we find a way that we can deliver teaching in a more effective manner uh, for users? So I'm here today joined by Dr. Sebastian uh, Valentin Schaeffer, uh, who is from the um, University of Bonn in Germany. And he has presented today a very nice work uh, in the abstract number 2079 uh, on the use of teledidactic way of uh, implementing teaching versus uh, on-site teaching. So, Sebastian, uh, Valentin, sorry, uh, welcome Thank to you. today's uh, meeting. And I wonder whether you could take us through yeah. the work that you've been doing. That's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Nice to, nice to be able to present uh, our abstract. Well, what we did, uh, we have been implementing point-of-care ultrasound uh, at the University of Bonn. I'm the ultrasound director and also the head of rheumatology. So I really tr tr try to make rheumatology as sexy as possible for medical students. And we have an ultrasound curriculum which is published, the MUTE study, musculoskeletal ultrasound in dermatology, which was focused on dermatologists to learn the most important ultrasound planes which there are in musculoskeletal ultrasound. And we further tested this in an, another study which is already published, the PSOZONE study, where dermatologists used musculoskeletal ultrasound to early diagnose psoriatic arthritis and it really worked quite well. And what we did now in our current abstract, we used this ultrasound curriculum to test teledidactic versus on-campus musculoskeletal ultrasound training um, in medical students. And how we did this, we did the pre-OSCE, so an objective structured clinical examination, a practical exam of ultrasound skills before the training and after the training. And we had one group assigned with 30 medical students doing on-campus training and the other one doing solely teledidactic training. In both training courses, we involved peer tutors to just decrease the level of interaction from student to student and we had experts like me who were online and were also available for deeper tasks. Now you ask yourself perhaps teledidactic how does it work and it's, it's not working, ultrasound is a practical skill. It is working because every student got his Butterfly IQ portable ultrasound probe and an iPad and they got it home and they were training during these online sessions with their student students or with their friends the ultrasound planes, we had the peer tutor who was just improving the plane, put it right, left, deeper, increase B mode and so on. And at the end of this course, which went over 12 weeks, we did another practical examination and we found amazing, outstanding results. The on-campus training had 90% of the possible highest uh, degree they could achieve and the teledidactic achieved even 92%. So numerically, teledidactic ultrasound training was even better. And that is amazing. I mean, we have to go with the time. We have to give students the possibility to teach them teledidactic if they want to, especially if you have students who live far away. They don't have to come to the university. They can train wherever they wanted. And we had the flipped classroom. That means medical students had the possibility to be online whenever they wanted and look at the different teaching courses and just reinforce their skills. That's an excellent result, a very high concordance between your on-site and true. your teledidactic. Um, in terms of the modules that you're teaching, uh, in the poster you talk about ultras musculoskeletal exactly. ultrasound. 
Do you think there's a possibility of expanding this to other regions of the body? Yeah, definitely. We, we have done this for ultrasound of the abdomen, the thyroid glands and the abdominal vessels. It's the TELOS-1 study, which is published in the European Journal of Ultrasound, uh, which was solely teledidactic because it was the pandemic. And uh, we also already conducted the TELUS-2 study, teledidactic ultrasound, also abdominal vessels and thyroid, which is currently submitted for publication. Mm -hmm. So I really think this teledidactic teaching is possible. We have to go with the time and we have to be attractive for our medical students and also young doctors in order to de deliver the best teaching at every location. So it's amazing because uh, it, it also uh, covers acute uh, aspects of uh, yes. care. So acute of care, course. for example, emergency care. Yes. As I suppose for rheumatology, the acute emergency would be the giant cell arthritis, Definitely. GCA. So tell, tell me, is this applicable in the training for that yes. part of the um, uh, condition? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Ultrasound is the first diagnostic imaging tool we use now for diagnosis of GCA. It has been implemented in the EULA guidelines, recommendations. I was also a member of it, so it's very important. And we have published a paper on this, on a patient's prospective study. We performed a blinded evaluation of the temporal artery with a point-of-care device and a high-end device, and giant cell arthritis was diagnosed in every case correctly, not in every vessel, but in every case. So it works. I still see a place for the high-end devices, but really for point-of-care, you want to know if it's really GCA, Point of care also works with these devices. So um, it's um, you know it, it cut across many different regions of the body and many different conditions as well. What does the future hold with the teledidactic um, training? Yeah. Where can we take this further for for our community in rheumatology? Sure. I think the biggest hassle at the moment is that we cannot deliver ultrasound training at every location in Europe or even across the world. And I think this is the biggest implication that we can offer ultrasound training whatever, abdomen, thyroid, or for us, of course, vessels and joints, at every location possible, even in China or in Korea or wh wherever, we can teach these doctors and improve medical care, and we don't, do not have to come then to our countries to learn it. So that's, uh, you know, this is the whole idea of moving knowledge and not moving Definitely. people yeah. so that this can be done. Yeah. So I suppose in the long term, how do we standardize the, the, learn, the teaching across different yeah. countries and different regions, will there be an exam that they sit or how do you know yeah. that they've achieved the standard that you set them out to do? Standardization is very important and it's a very important aspect. I think important is before standardization really publishing curricula which we have done and then adhering to these curricula. And the practical examination we did is an objective structure clinical examination in OSCE which is completely standardized. Everyone is asked the same questions, do this, do that, start the machine, show us this section, do you see effusion, what is your clinical interpretation. And this is very standardized, so this can be really translated to every location. The only thing you have to do is translate it perhaps to another language, if English is the problem. But normally this could, would, I would not expect uh, any hustles. Yeah, so this is a, is a major improvement in terms of the delivery and innovation, which are very keen, especially we've been discussing about digital health and digital toolkits, so how we can improve the spread of this condition. Um, so for our viewers, you know, as we kind of wrap it up, what would be your take-home message about <laughs> your, your poster that you presented? You. What you. were your take-home messages okay. for our readers? Yeah, I think my, our take-home message is this teledidactic training works. 
and also an ultrasound. There are these people who say ultrasound is a practical skill, you need to come where and you need to learn it practically. No, it is possible to learn a teledidactic if you have a good teacher, if you have the appropriate machinery like we had. So they really, you can project the live ultrasound sections to the tutors and then it really works. So we look forward to hearing more about your work in the future, future meetings, congresses. And as you advance and really champion ultrasound, <laughs> I think we've never met such a passionate person who, Thank and you. I met you today, and uh, this is why we feel that uh, this would be a good uh, way of trying to deliver teaching, because it's always difficult to get everybody to come in one-to-one -one location. And so today we've learned something new. So thank you very thank much you. for your time. Thanks Again, I would you. advise you to have a look at Abstract 2079 uh, from Dr. Valentin Sheffer. Thank you very much. Thank you very much as well. Bye. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now here at ACR 23 in San Diego. Today at the plenary session, this is Tuesday, uh, there was a great presentation about methotrexate use in RA. This is abstract 1583 presented by Varun Deer, where he presented the results of a study which looked at single-dose oral methotrexate versus split-dose oral methotrexate, both given weekly in a large cohort of RA patients. The study was done at six centers in India. These are patients with about two years of disease activity and uh, a mean age at entry of around 41 years. They had to have, be seropositive, they had to have at least four tender and two swollen joints. And they were started on 15 milligrams, escalated to 20 in two weeks, and then 25 uh, by week four. And everyone was treated with 25 milligrams per week with supplemental folic acid. The primary endpoint of the study was unfortunately week 24. I'll say unfortunately because at week 16, they were still just on methotrexate, right? But at week 16, if they had a DAS that was greater than 3.2, the doctors could have added on leflunamide or sulfasalazine, and then the end of the study was six months for week 24, and that was the primary endpoint. Big mistake, as I'll show you in the results. So again, um, the study was sort of well-recruited and, and well-tolerated. The primary endpoint was at week 24, and the primary endpoint measure was a ULAR good response. Gotta say, I really still don't know what a ULAR good response is. And you know what? It wasn't different between split-dose oral and single-dose uh, methotrexate, 25 milligrams a week. However, if you looked at week 16, when people were just on, um, uh, methotrexate only, with no other add-ons, the differences were significant and highly significant. At week 16, split-dose oral, ACR 20, was 76% versus 52 with single-dose. Um, ACR 50, 55% versus 35%. ACR 70, 25 versus 14%. That's significant. Now, why am I making a big deal out of this? The problem is, once you use more than 15 milligrams of methotrexate, you know that oral absorption is highly variable and could go down by as much as 50%. And that's why when you get up to 15 milligrams a week, you should be going into split dose oral. And what does that mean? The people that got 25 milligrams got 25 milligrams all at once on Wednesday morning. The people who got the split dose oral got 15 in the morning and 10 milligrams in the evening. And what that does is it greatly increases the absorption and the blood levels of methotrexate on par with that achieved by giving a parenteral dose of methotrexate. So that's why the study really helps inform practice that when you, once you're above 15 milligrams, you probably should go to split dose oral and you'll see 
really optimal outcomes for um, your patients receiving methotrexate for RA. The question is, as you, as you go to split dose oral and you deliver more drug to the patient, to the cell, do you not increase toxicity? And you should. However, in this study, they really didn't. They had actually more transaminitis, um, but these were not significant. They did have um, a little bit more in the way of, um, uh, of nausea and or GI symptoms, but it was not significant, right? Other things that were important in this study, the patients who got split dose oral had better improvement in their DASH-28. They had um, uh, less need for rescue DMARDs, the addition of liflutamide or sulfazalazine. That was like for 35% in people on split dose oral versus 55% in people that were on the single dose once a week. So this study, which was an open label blinded assessor study, 24 weeks, 253 patients, really does help inform practice, and I think you'll be hearing a lot about it. It comes from ACR 23. Tune in for more. Hello everyone, my name is Yus Yusuf. I'm from Leeds. I'm reporting for Room Now uh, at this uh, 2023 ACR in uh, sunny San Diego, California. As we all know uh, that the use of uh, JAK inhibitors has been associated with increased risk of thromboembolism uh, from the oral surveillance data. Therefore, there is uh, uh, a need for us to understand the immunopathogenesis behind this. Uh, today we will discuss about uh, an abstract number 1676. Uh, just to let you know that this abstract has been awarded uh, as an uh, emerging uh, excellence investigator award to Dr. Paula David, David who unfortunately could not be here today. Uh, and uh, she was working with uh, Professor Dennis McGonagall, who is the senior author who is available to be interviewed today. Hi, Dennis. Hi, yes, hi. Uh, it's nice to be in sunny San Diego from Leeds. Yeah. 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 So, so we work together, and, and Dennis is from Leeds as well. Um, so, would you like to tell us about uh, the background of the study and what motivated you to yes. look into yeah. this topic? So, uh, as we all know, jack inhibition has been linked to thrombosis, and the mechanisms are poorly understood. And with us working on respiratory wards during the COVID pandemic, we become aware of this phenomenon of, of immunothrombosis or immune-driven thrombosis. So um, I sent Paula to work with Robert Arians, who is a specialist coagulation laboratory in Leeds, uh, to explore the idea that uh, jack inhibition uh, may in some way increase immune-driven thrombosis. So what uh, Paula did was she got blood samples from rheumatoid arthritis, inactive and active, and also control samples. and. Um, she extracted the mononuclear cell fraction from these and then uh, she activated them in the laboratory um, with lipopolysaccharide and also other uh, toll receptor agonists like poly-IC. And then she collected the, the supernatants from these cells and uh, subsequently added them to a normal plasma to see if that accelerated clot formation and that is called a turbidity assay. She also added the supernatants from the rheumatoid and control cells to whole blood in an assay called thromboelastography to look at clot formation in whole blood and not just plasma, and the whole blood also including platelets. Um, so what they, uh, so the, key, the key experiment was when we added um, uh, tofacitinib to 
lipopolysaccharide stimulated macrophages, we found that uh, the lipopolysaccharide uh, increased the rate of cl clot formation, but the addition of tofacitinib actually increased it even more. Um, uh, so we then uh, did the thromboelastography and we similarly saw that the whole blood clotting was in no way diminished uh, with the addition of a JAK inhibitor to the lipopolysaccharide or a surrogate for infection driven uh, thrombosis. Um, so to explore that further we then did bulk RNA sequencing and we saw that many genes were upregulated and downregulated differentially when tofacitinib was added to LPS compared to LPS alone and some inflammatory genes including those related to IL-12 went up and uh, anti-inflammatory gene expression in macrophages including protein S which rheumatologists will have heard of protein S and C mm -hmm. that actually went down significantly so there's a, a myriad of potential mechanisms so the obvious question then is all of this work was done with tofacitinib so then we did the same experiments with JAK2, JAK1, JAK2, JAK3, PAN-JAK inhibitors and we saw that most of the JAK inhibitors but not all had this uh, effect so to summarize uh, our work, Paula's work, she basically uh, stumbled across a hitherto unappreciated mechanism whereby in certain circumstances the presence particularly of bacterial uh, cell wall products, but not, not TOL3 agonist, it was linked to the bacterial uh, cell wall product. In certain circumstances this could increase uh, thrombosis, uh, potentially in both the arterial and venous trees in vivo. Uh, so more work to be done of course. Yeah, and, and this is really interesting finding and you also look into like, the whole you know, in the pan of Jack and to see the you know, association with thrombosis. So um, when you say uh, so potentially they, this could be triggered by you know, bacterial infection, yes, yes. so you know, in terms of our, for clinical practice, do you think what should we do to um, an employer trying to prevent you know, the thrombotic yeah. de uh, development from Jack use? Yeah, so we, I didn't say but in, in active RA compared to remission RA, the uh, clot formation was faster. So uh, controlling rheumatoid well may uh, diminish the uh, risk of this immunothrombosis. So maybe low dose steroids simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Nobody li likes in the current era likes to mm -hmm. mention the word steroids. Yeah. And uh, the other thing about infection is we believe that this phenomenon in vivo, what happens is we likely aspirate bacteria into a respiratory tract. We're slightly immunosuppressed by the jack overall. Uh, but then when the, the, the jack inhibition in conjunction with bacteria in the, in the, in the, in the alveolar network may trigger uh, this clotting which will trigger then a little bit of pleurisy uh, and uh, this may trigger secondary vascular thrombosis so it gives a pulmonary artery thrombosis in situ rather than embolization from the deep veins so yeah. it, it just gives us a general different view for example antiphospholipid syndrome we now know this is a distinct pathogenesis mm. so we could probably give a an antiphospholipid patient a jack if we had to mm. so it's just that we I think we've stumbled upon a mechanism in conjunction with our excellent uh, uh, coagulation laboratory uh, 
uh, collaborators who, who obviously deserve all the credit. Yeah. So just lastly, just before we wrap up, so just to try to give in terms of clinical context, so if a patient who were on jack inhibitors and were admitted you know, because of like, pneumonia yes. or something like that, would you then say that we should really pay attention in terms of trying to give them anticoagulation in the, you know, during the hospitalization to prevent from thrombosis? Uh, yeah, so th that's that's a good question, and uh, you've just put it on the radar. Mm. Uh, so we need to we need to now start thinking like this mm. if people uh, with the pneumonia are at, at, at risk of this. But it is important to point out that people with uh, viral pneumonia, including influenza, not just COVID, and bacterial pneumonia, do naturally get immunothrombosis mm. to block the uh, avenues of exit of the bacteria mm. and prevent bacteremia. So it is a f immunothrombosis is a physiological phenomenon. Uh, mm. So that may not be a big issue, but yeah. very interesting. Uh, so we are so glad uh, having you, Dennis, here uh, with, with Room Now, and thank you so much for summarizing your work beautifully in you know, for us. Thanks, yes, for asking me. And there's no bias that you chose a fellow Leeds person. <laughs> I hope that's good. Yeah. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for listening to our interview. I hope you find it uh, useful and informative. Uh, so you can follow Room Now uh, through various social media outlets, YouTube, Twitter, and etc. for more contents of ACR 23 coverage. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Hi, it's David Liu here, reporting from San Diego. We're back for ACR Convergence 2023. Room now is here covering a whole lot of different things. We've got a lot of jack inhibitor coverage as well. And I want to tell you a little bit about a really interesting post I saw, posted 0429, which it takes data from the Select Compare study. So that's a study which compared upadacitinib to adalimumab, the clinical trial. They've done a post hoc analysis of this and I think it's really interesting because it tells us there's a, some, some hints from this, but then I wonder what this means going forward. It looks at pain, and we all struggle with pain in our rheumatoid arthritis patients. We all don't know what to do when we've got rid of inflammation and there's still pain there. I think it's the kind of thing that keeps us up at night in terms of what this means for our patients. That's when our patients don't work, walk away as satisfied as they could be. This study looks specifically at comparing adalimumab to upadacitinib and does some fancy mediation analysis to try and understand what contributions come directly from uh, pain improvement from the, the medicine itself versus pain improvement that comes through improving inflammation. So trying to look at surrogates from inflammation, things like ESR, trying to look at the, the swollen joint counts, comparing those to the other effects that might not be accounted for that. And so using a bit of this fancy cute analysis, we can try and see how much of the pain improvement might be from the drug itself versus from inflammation improvements. What this shows is actually upadacitinib implies that upadacitinib has a direct effect on reducing pain compared to adalimumab. And I think that's really interesting if that's the case. So this is potentially something which is an enormous selling point. If we can say, well, JAK inhibitors, JAK1 inhibitor like upadacitinib has benefits beyond the inflammation, then that's something we might think about. Now, it feels like we've heard this before, because we have. We've seen data about baricitinib implying the same kind of thing. We've seen in psoriatic arthritis, we've seen um, data from gaselcomab implying the same kind of thing. But we can only take these implications so far. How, what is this meant to mean for us? Because I think we look at this data and think, well, maybe that patient with a more fibromyalgic outlook 
on their rheumatoid arthritis. Maybe that's the kind of patient I might want to use upadacitinib for versus a TNF inhibitor. Now, I think that's a slightly harder thing, post-oral surveillance, but we're trying to find the patients who will benefit from upadacitinib. Maybe those are the ones who, who might. If those are the patients that are going to benefit, let's see clinical trials in that. And maybe that's just me being unrealistic, but what I would love to see are rheumatoid arthritis patients with a fibromyalgic overlay, type of patients who might not necessarily ordinarily get into clinical trials, see those patients and give them UPA versus adalimumab, and let's see whether UPA outperforms, especially on that pain, and leads to real improvements in the fibromyalgia that overlies rheumatoid arthritis. For plenty more on JAK inhibitors, rheumatoid arthritis, and plenty more, go down to roomnow.com. You know what to do. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kay from UMass Chan Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts, reporting for Room Now from ACR Convergence 2023. I'm here in San Diego on this first day of the meeting, and I was impressed by Abstract 0423, which was a poster about CAR-T reg cell therapy in rheumatoid arthritis. CAR T cells are now all the buzz for the treatment of lupus and other systemic autoimmune disease, but we've not heard a lot about CAR T cells for rheumatoid arthritis. In this poster, the presenters developed a CAR T reg cell directed against citrullinated antigens that are present in serum and synovial fluid of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. They looked for these citrullinated proteins in synovial fluid of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and individuals without rheumatoid arthritis, as well as in serum from patients with or without rheumatoid arthritis. And they found that there was reactivity with these citrullinated antigens in 84% of synovial fluids from rheumatoid arthritis patients and 48% of serum samples. Now, it's very interesting that in rheumatoid arthritis, proteins such as fibronectin are elevated in concentration compared to serum. The concentration of fibronectin in rheumatoid synovial fluid is threefold elevated above that in matched serum samples. So citrullination of proteins like fibronectin may be a prevalent component of synovial fluid and could be a target for CAR-T regulatory cell therapy. CAR-T cells directed against synovial antigens are a very promising way of treating rheumatoid arthritis, especially given that the presence of these citronated antigens correlated with markers of disease activity, namely elevated levels of serum interleukin-6 and C-reactive protein. This treatment option for rheumatoid arthritis is just in the early stages of development, but I look forward to seeing clinical trials of these CAR-T regulatory cells in rheumatoid arthritis. This proves to be a very good potential therapy for autoimmune diseases such as lupus and holds promise for rheumatoid arthritis as well. I'm Jonathan Kay, reporting for Room Now from ACR Convergence 2023 in San Diego. Stay tuned for more reports from ACR Convergence 2023 on Room Now. See you again soon.